It's fun to hear what kids think about marriage. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. If you're brand new, whether you're at East for the first time, you're at RCMU or, or West for the first time, we're glad you're here. Some of you, you've come and you, you've learned that this is a marriage series and you've drugged someone with you and, like, and you're just ready to get something fixed. And some of you are like, this doesn't have any relevance to me whatsoever. You're not married. You never want to be married, wherever you are in that category. I'm going to tell you that if you'll press into this series, I think you will learn things about relationships. You'll learn things more importantly about God that you need to know. So I'm glad that you're here. We have a special guest. Her name is Shanti. So let's give it up for her. I don't, I don't want to waste any time. I want to really get into this. But, but before we launch into, into all of the data and the research and all of that, here's what I know about you. I know that, that well, obviously you communicate for a living. You, you write books for a living. By the way, uh, I'm just not going to let her talk about this. Uh, she writes books. You should read her books. We have her books in the lobby. You see how that all connects in a great way? Uh, if you're online, you're like, I don't have a lobby in my house. Well, you're going to have to <laughs> figure it out. Uh, but these books are incredible. So with all of that, she's a researcher. She has gathered tons of incredible information, made sense of it. When we all look at it, like, this doesn't make any sense. You've made sense of it. And so we've got her here to help us maybe uh, tip over some of our misunderstandings about marriage. But before we get into that, you live somewhere, and I think you live with people. Who <laughs> yes. are these people, and where do you live? So I live in Atlanta uh, with Jeff, my husband, and two teenagers. Pray for me. Um, yes, our daughter just started driving, so this is like... Oh, no. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, and, and came there from Wall Street, used to work on Wall Street, and then God did a right-hand turn into this whole researching relationships thing. Wow. Wall Street. We all have a great opinion of I'm Wall sure. Street. <laughs> so we're glad that you're here. Uh, yeah, I, me too. <laughs> so uh, when I was in kindergarten, and this makes sense, so when I was in kindergarten, I came home, and my mom and dad would always ask, you know, how was your day? What did you learn? What did you talk about? I think they were anticipating maybe I learned some letters or things. And my first question one time, they told me this, was I asked them just directly, so when are you guys getting divorced? I think they were a bit set back with a question. And then they pressed in, and this is what they tell me is I guess I had a friend or two or some who, who their parents were getting divorced. And so I just expected my mom and dad just tell me the date. I kind of want to plan on this. I mean, how sad is that as a kindergartner? But that was a conversation. They began to tell me oh, that's not happening. Uh, but, but I got to tell you, my perception of that, I don't know, changed. Because yeah. as I've, I've, I've grown up and I've, I've seen it, I've watched folks, I've read books, I've read articles, I have heard at least that divorce and marriage is breaking up it's pretty much standard. It always happens. It's just the way things go, and that's what happens. So, so uh, Katie and I read this book uh, this summer. We were driving across South Dakota. Uh, you've never had the pleasure of doing that. I have not, actually. Well, uh, what you do, uh, you, you just put on cruise, and you hope you got good music, good conversation, or a good book on audio format. And so okay. we listened to this great book about the good news about marriage. But before we get into all that stuff, I... You're going to say some things that, that are very profound, in, in, in my opinion. 
But why does this matter, this idea about marriage and, and, the, and the research? Why does it matter as you've dove into this? So it's interesting. It, it stems from my understanding of why this matters stems from the fact that for years now, I have been interviewing and surveying people about their inner thoughts and feelings that you don't normally say out loud, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, because we do these big nationally representative surveys and a lot of random interviews. Like I'll just randomly stop people in airports and coffee shops and ask them, <laughs> questions. And I usually take my book with like the picture on the back to prove like really I'm not a stalker. Like this is legitimate. It's good. Um, usually. Um, so, but it's interesting as I have heard these people's kind of inner thoughts, one of the things that is common is a discouragement about marriage. You know, mm. we all think, you know, the 50% divorce rate, it all sort of feels like it's just iffy, flip the coin. You hear people say marriage is hard. You know, pastors will say that when they marriage the couple, marriage is, marriage is hard. It's like, that's not the best advertisement <laughs> for marriage, you know? But it's, it's interesting. I was a columnist for years and I was doing a column about divorce and I thought, you know, I should probably look in the Census Bureau tables and so I could figure out what the real number is. Like maybe it's not 50, you know, maybe mm. it's 48.7, you know, what I want to decide it correctly. And what I saw in these numbers astounded me because it didn't match the narrative. It didn't mm. match this conventional wisdom of a 50% divorce rate. And I, I started to look more and more, and it is very, very complicated to figure out. Um, you know, eyes roll back in head, complicated. But, but enough, I had enough understanding initially to go, whoa, this is actually a big deal because I talk to all these people, I hear that inner discouragement because you kind of have this feeling like, well, if half of people, half of everybody else can't make it either, you know, it makes us so special. And it, it, there's this sense of futility that comes in. And I started to look at these numbers and go, wait a minute, if the divorce rate isn't 50%, if most marriages last a lifetime, which is what I was seeing in the numbers, that's actually a really big <laughs> deal. Because bottom line, what we found is that the common denominator, there's really one, there's just one common denominator in whether a marriage survives or fails. There's lots of problems, there's lots of factors that get in the way, but underneath which outcome you have is whether the couple thinks they're gonna make it. Wow. Right, if you have a sense of hope and you think, yeah, this is difficult, we're going through challenges, but we're gonna make it. You mm. generally do, but it's when you start to think, you know what, if the ship is gonna sink anyway, why bother working so hard to bail it out? That's when that sense of that undertow pulls you down. And it makes a huge difference to know, you know what, the news is actually very good. It's not all good, but it's very good. And most people make it, and not just make it, but have marriages that are happy that last a lifetime. Wow. I hope that's music to some people's ears, that, that just the expectation yeah. is a significant factor. So, so like I said, I read the good news about marriage. I read the book. I cheated. So tell us all, what is the good news about marriage? Yeah. We, we found five things, and I know we're not going to be able to get into all five of them, but, but the, the first and the most important one is, is debunking this 50% mm -hmm. divorce rate myth, because right now, this is the Census Bureau numbers. Like, this is not some little sidebar study. And, and I should say, by the way, I am simplifying something that is really, really complicated, and a lot of people have different opinions on how you look at the various numbers and what's the divorce rate measuring at all, and... 
And so just be aware, but to me, the best numbers, to me, the most stable, the most, the biggest picture of the Census Bureau is, says right now, as we're sitting here talking, 71% of people are still married to their first spouse. Wow. Wow. That is huge, right? I mean, and, and by the way, the 29% who aren't still married, that includes everybody who was married for 50 years and their spouse died. Wow. That's not even the divorce rate. Wow. That includes death and divorce. And that's one of the reasons we misunderstand the numbers and you see the numbers, you know, come up in the surveys and you think, oh, you know, these look bad, but it usually includes death and divorce. Nobody knows what the divorce rate actually is. Hmm. Um, which is why this conventional wisdom goes the wrong direction, because you don't have a good number to fill in the gap. But we can get closer. You know, we, there's about a 14% rate of widowhood. Okay. There's some other factors. So we can estimate that probably about 25% of first marriages have ended in divorce. Okay. Now, that is still way too high, but it yeah. is a universe different wow. than this 50% flip the coin thing. Wow. It means most marriages last a lifetime. So you, you're talking to a group of people who are in church, or at least watching from afar. Yeah. Uh, I've also been told that this divorce rate outside of the church equals the divorce rate in the church. It's no different. Yeah. Is that true? No. Okay. I, I, had, I, had, I had heard this too. I, okay. I have said all these things from stage, right? And, and we all think it because there was a lot of attention over the years to some studies done by a researcher named George Barna, and he studies faith and religious things, and, and everybody thinks that George Barna found that the rate of divorce is the same in the church, and he didn't because he never studied people in the church. He was only studying, when I went back and looked at the raw data, because that's kind of what I felt like my job was, I had this numbers background, I could look at the actual t data sets and stuff, and when I looked at the raw data, it turns out that he was studying only belief systems. Hmm. So if you call people on the phone, someone who answers in a Christian way or a Muslim way or an atheist way, et cetera, those people have the same divorce rates. But he specifically excluded whether they went to church from the analysis hmm. because that, that wasn't what he was trying to study. And so I partnered with Barna and I bought that same data set, and we re-ran all those numbers, but with that factor, you know, added back yeah. in of, was the person in church last week? And if the person was in church last week, according to Barna, by the way, and not just Barna, but actually there's been a lot of studies done on this. They've all found the same thing. The divorce rate drops anywhere from 25 to 50% or more, depending on the study and the group. That is... Wow. Huge. It's, it's not just that church attendance and getting into a community of believers, it's not just that it matters, it matters a lot. Wow. It's hugely different. Wow. So you, I mean, with all this research, there's, a, there's another, okay, another book, uh, <laughs> Highly Happy Marriages. Mm -hmm. You've discovered secrets, let's call them secrets. You, you discovered things of, of happy marriages that, that I think may not be what we think are accurate, just from maybe we've been told it, seen it on Facebook, whatever. Uh, so I, I kind of go through some of these, if this okay. Yeah, Surprising absolutely. Surprising secrets, tappy marriages, uh, about believing, what you believe about your spouse. Okay, so 
it turns out, as we were surveying these happy couples, and, and I should explain, by the way, that that's what we were doing. We were studying the most happily married couples, the people who, in, if you ask them on a national survey, and it's all, it was, it's too complicated to explain how we did it, but we arranged to make sure that they were not taking the survey in any way that their spouse would ever see their answers. Okay. It was anonymous and it was completely independent. Their spouse would never know what they said. And if the husband and the wife independently answered that they were at the highest end of happiness in their marriage, those are the people I wanted to talk to. Right. Those are the people oh, yeah. I wanted to compare their, their survey answers. And so we studied what they did compared to what everybody else did including people in good marriages, by the way. Okay. And the top answer by far, the most important thing, was that they refused to believe the worst of their spouse's intentions, mm. even when they were legitimately hurt. Because we all get hurt, right? Even the happiest couples have conflict, and I mean, that just happens, we're, it's life. But the difference is what they did with it. The normal human tendency that I have operated in way too many times is this sense of like when my husband would say something that hurt my feelings, there would be this little subconscious feeling like, ow, mm. like he knew how that would make me feel and he said it anyway. And without realizing it, I'm thinking he doesn't care about me, right? That's what that translates to. And instead, the happiest couples, they wouldn't do that. They would, have, they would be hurt, just like anybody else, but it would be the sense of, ow, but no, no, I know he loves me. Hmm. I know he cares about me, so he must not have known how that would make me feel or he wouldn't have said it. Wow. And they, they flip it. Or like if it's a guy, you know, and he's thinking, you know, this, oh, nothing I do is ever good enough for her. No, no, I know she appreciates me. I know that. So she must not realize that this comes across as critical yeah. and is making me feel that way. It's just, it, and, and the good news is it's not wishful thinking. We found mm. on the survey that the, it's almost 100%, sadly not 100%, yeah. but 99.37 or something percent of, of people really care about each other. Wow. So if you're not connecting this, let, let me help you. If hypothetically... If you've ever had an argument because of the tone that your spouse used. I'm sure nobody can relate I to that. I don't even relate to this no. at all. I always speak to my wife just very softly, <laughs> gaze into her eyes. So let's just pretend that you've had an argument over the tone. What, what she just told us helps us understand something profound that perhaps whether you like the tone or heard the tone correctly or incorrectly, if you just infer the best intentions, it's a game changer. Yeah. So let's nerd out on this a little bit. Uh, you are known for how you've written books on understanding men and understanding women, and you have actually discovered a few things that I just want you just to share with us that I think we all need to take notes on. Yeah, this is the fun part. I, I have to tell you, I have the best opening line like in the world when I meet random people on the airplane or whatever, like the guy sitting next to me on the airplane yesterday, you know, coming here. He's like, so what do you do? And I'm like, I help women understand men. You know, I mean, it's, okay. and it's funny because, you know, the average guy is like, what are you going to tell them about us? You know, there's a, 
There's a, yeah, dear. I mean, he's like, are you telling people that men are pigs? Like, I mean, literally, that's the question he answered. And I'm like, no, actually, men really like me usually, like, because I explain things that it's hard for them to explain, and vice versa for women. And, and one of the, the things that this related to that we found with the happiest couples is that there tended to be some little, and I mean little, day-to-day things that the wives tended to do for their husbands in these happiest couples that they didn't even necessarily realize they were doing. They didn't realize it was a big deal. And that the husbands tended to do for the wives these little different, they were all different Hmm. things, but they were all the same between what the women tended to do for the men and they were all the same between what the men tended to do for the women. And I'll give you one of each. There were five little ones that we found on each side, completely different. But the wives tended to say thank you a lot. And we actually found, we did this whole big study and found that for us as women, we love to hear I love you because it like speaks at this heart cry of, am I lovable? You know, am I special? And so, you know, am I worthy of being loved for who I am on the inside? And it's, it, it, that's why it hits us when we feel like he loves us, he cherishes us. For a guy, they're kind of like, you know, feeling loved is nice, but it's not like the end-all, be-all. For a guy, his question is, am I able? Hmm. You know, am I adequate? And it's really more, am I any good at what I do? And so when a woman notices what her husband did, like he changed the light bulbs. Like Jeff the other day, the light bulbs were out in the hallway. And he, she changed them all, and I... I realize, because I tend to think, oh, that's nice of him, and then I don't say anything. But when you notice and you say, thanks for changing the light bulbs for him, that's his equivalent of I love you, believe it or not. Mm. And it's the little day-to-day-to-day, thanks for always bringing me my coffee in the morning. You know, thanks for grabbing the kids from ball, the ball game so I didn't have to. Just these little things, it's like oxygen, for a man, and we women have no clue that it's such a big deal. Because we, like I said, we think it, we don't think to say it. So that's one of these life-changing things yeah. on, for the, the happy couples from the woman's side. From the guy's side, you know, one of the things that a lot of men don't realize, they, they know a woman wants to feel loved. They don't know how easy it is for her to not feel loved. And that women carry around, just like a guy carries around that, do I measure up kind of feeling, Mm -hmm. a woman carries around an am I lovable kind of feeling. And so there's a question, like, is he glad he married me? Mm -hmm. You know, would he choose me all over again? There's a question in her heart. It's subconscious. It's not necessarily up there. It's subconscious. But she has that question every day. So she needs to know the answer every day. And so literally, guys, when you, this is one of the other little things we found on the guy's side, they tended to reach across and take their wives' hands when they were walking across a parking lot. Or they were sitting together at church or at, or at dinner out with friends or whatever, and he would reach around and put his arm around her. Those things say you're mine, mm. right? They say, I would choose you all over. See, I just saw some smart men. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is a good application. Women, if he does this, you're not allowed to go, you are only doing that because she told you to, right? <laughs> Believe the best. 
See how that works? Believe the best of the intentions. Like, and, and guys, when she says thank you now, don't think you're only saying that because you were told to. It's like, no, this is how I felt. I love you. This is how I felt. I appreciate you. I just didn't know these little things mattered. So now you know. So it good. makes a big difference. That's so good. So let's talk about one that I didn't like when I first heard it. It had to do about... <laughs> I'm scared here, yeah. It had to do about arguing and then going to bed and can you be mad at each other? Is that, I probably like upended all of your pastoral yep. counseling Was not very with happy this one. I'm so sorry. We, I, see, here's the thing. We've all heard it's really important to not go to bed mad. I think we've all said it. We've all been told it in premarital counseling. I've preached it. Yeah. And, and as I was studying the happiest couples, honestly, it was kind of funny because we wanted to find out what did they actually do as opposed to what they say to do. Does it make sense? Yep. Right? Like, what are they actually doing? And so we'd sit across from the happy couple and you know, get, let's find out, let's get it out on the table what your advice is first. And always one of the top three is it's really important to not go to bed mad. And so my next question was always like, absolutely. So um, do you <laughs> ever? Well, it's a really important principle, you know, and we tell the young couples <laughs> that we counsel and, and I'm like, no, no, I get that it's important principle. But what I want to know is like, do you ever do this? And we found, we, we surveyed a thousand couples, and of the happy couples, three had never gone to bed mad. Wow. And, and honestly, what we heard from them is that, yes, sometimes they do. And we heard this common pattern that they said sometimes when you have two exhausted, angry, upset people trying to duke it out at midnight, like, nothing good is going to come from that point forward. And so they had learned that sometimes it was really powerful to just say, you know what, we need to say we're okay, we're going to be okay, we need to sleep on this and, and pick it up in the morning. And half the time in the morning, they were sort of like, what was that about, right? But the other thing that we saw is that if they weren't okay in the morning, and if that issue was still there, the difference between the happy couples and everything, everybody else was what they did at that moment. Because mm. if that issue was still there, they didn't let it go. They dealt with it. Wow. That everybody else, even people in good marriages, were more likely to kind of hope the issue just sort of floated away and you don't want to deal yep. with it. And the happy couples dealt with it. And, and honestly, that one action... It, it really truly makes a difference in how much of that stuff is piling up. Do you mind if I mention the biblical? Because I'm sure some people Go are like, it. Go for but it. what about the Bible? We love it. You know? So I really struggled with this when I first learned this. Um, I got the results back, and I was, a little, I was a little tense about it because as a social scientist, but also as a follower of Christ, one of the things that I'd always loved was that all my data, all these big nationally representative surveys proved what the Bible was saying all along, right? And yet suddenly on this, I was thinking, ah, but you know, we all know Ephesians, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And we translate that to don't go to bed mad, even though it's not actually what it says, but that's sort of what we translate it to. 
And, um, and so I was alarmed, like, does it matter if the happy couples do this if it's unbiblical, <laughs> you know? And a pastor actually pointed out something that I had never seen before, which is that the Apostle Paul, when he's saying this, don't let the sun go down in your anger, he's actually quoting a verse from the Old Testament that his audience would have been very familiar with. It's Psalms 4.4, and the the Ephesians passage says, um, in your anger, do not sin, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Psalms 4.4 says, in your anger, do not sin, think about it overnight and remain silent. Hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I thought when I first saw that. And, and it's interesting. It, it really means, I think, biblically, the common thing is in your anger, don't sin, mm-hmm. right? If, if you need to duke it out to not sin in your anger, do that. If you need to put it on hold, reassure each other, deal with it the next morning, do that. That's awesome. So now some of us at night will be like, uh, think about it overnight, just remember that. That's good. So uh, that's, that's one final one on this. Uh, happy couples and the best friend principle almost. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, this was really interesting to me that we found that the, the, one of the most common patterns with these happy couples is that they treated each other first and foremost like best friends. Mm. It, was, it was fascinating. Um, and it was also one of the things, there were several of these factors and there were, we actually found 12 of them. We're not even getting to most of them. But there were 12 of these factors. And several of them were huge for couples that had gone from being really unhappy in their marriage to being part of this highly happy group. And, um, and this was one of them. They treated each other primarily like best friends. And if anything was getting in the way of that friendship, they had to deal with it. And we actually found, it was interesting, there was a study that was done on the greatest, predictor, the greatest predictor of friendship. And we think, I think most of us, if you asked what's the greatest predictor of friendship, you'd, you'd say, you know, things like shared values yeah. or, you know, similar temperaments, you know, those kinds of things. And those, those are there, but they're a distant second. The greatest predictor of friendship is geographic proximity. Which makes total sense if you think about it, because we all know that the, the, your best friends are the people you see the most often. And we all know that because we've moved away or we've had friends move away, and you're still, you love each other and you care about each other, but you don't have that same like intimate closeness, that day-to-day closeness. And it works the same way in marriage that you have to have that day-to-day closeness to keep the friendship tight. And, and the stuff that we saw from these happy couples, it was, it was the simplest stuff that they would do to implement that. It wasn't, it wasn't like always having to do a date night every mm-hmm. week. I mean, that's great if you can do it, but not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. And I had, like for example, one of these happy couples, they had gone from being really miserable, almost breaking up, to being part of this highly happy study group. And I was talking to the, to the wife, and, and I said, what changed? You know, what was it that, that was a change? And she said, you know, honestly, I looked at our schedule really, like I decided I was gonna be really realistic, and I looked at our schedule to find out how much time he and I had together just to hang out and, as husband and wife, and not like, 
you know, just talking about the schedule or whatever. And she said it was 15 minutes a week. You know, they had three little kids, they were running around, they were always never seeing each other. And she said, no wonder we're always at odds. You know, no wonder, because we don't have a, we're not friends anymore. And so she looked at their schedule and she said, okay, the only possible change is, she said, Tuesdays and Thursdays, her husband would take their, they had a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a baby, something like that. And her husband would take the six-year-old to T-ball twice a week. And she's like, there is no reason why I have to put the toddler and the baby mm. into the car and drive to T-ball with them, except for the fact that that is 20 minutes there mm. and 20 minutes on the way back twice a week that we have just to talk. And she said, it changed everything because suddenly we were connecting again, we liked each other again, we were hearing what, it, what was going on in each other's lives. And what we found statistically with these happy couples is that that process of making sure that your friendship is tight first and foremost, it doesn't solve the big problems. If there's addiction there, if there's whatever, it doesn't solve that but it makes it so much easier to solve mm. because you, you're friends again, you care about each other. So, I mean, it, 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 it's not a cure-all, but it's a pretty big deal. Don't give in to the temptation when you start fighting. Don't give in to the temptation of, temptation of avoiding each other oh. to, avoid the, to avoid the conflict because that means you're now even further apart. Yeah. Instead, the happy couples would spend more time together to try to keep the friendship strong. That's good. So, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about church and, and Jesus. Uh, in your research, have you discovered, does, does that impact a marriage? Yeah, yeah. Also. No, it was, it was really telling, honestly. I would, I would stop people in the airport or the coffee shop or whatever, and I'd say, what's your secret? And it was fascinating how often completely random people would they kind of look at each other and then they'd look at me and they'd say it's because of Jesus Christ and you could kind of tell they were like oh this is a chance to witness to a social researcher like ooh, like they were so excited about this but it was it was telling and and statistically there's all sorts of studies that have been done on this it's not even a debate the people who have the strongest marriages have the strong faith they attend church regularly. They try to be in a community of other believers. And I think there's really two big reasons why we found this so much with the happy couples. Is, I mean, first of all, there is something about the Holy Spirit giving us really an ability to love the other person the way they need that we don't have on our own. I'm selfish on my own. I kind of want what's in marriage. I kind of want what's in it for me, right? It's all about yeah. me. And, um, and, and yet it can't be, right? The, the whole idea of, of marriage is to look at the other person, what can I do to serve them? How can, I, how can I love them well? We don't have that. God has to give us that. And the Holy Spirit has the ability, if we ask him, to give us that ability, that power to love selflessly, um, even if we're not perfect. The, the other reason I think that it makes such a difference that faith and truly trying to put God at the center of your marriage and make such a difference is that it also lends itself to being part of a community that's supportive. Mm -hmm. Because normally that means if you're 
trying to put God at the center of your marriage, you're coming to church, you're maybe connecting with others and more even just fellowship settings, you're going out to lunch, you're in a small group, whatever it is. And if you're in that kind of relationship and fellowship with other believers and you get into trouble, someone's going to notice. You know, someone's going to say, are you, and, are you and Bob doing all right? Oh, I don't know. You know, and there, people are going to come around you and support you. It's not perfect. It doesn't always work perfectly. But those two things, I think, is one of the reasons we see such a difference. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, I know in your research about discovering what, what makes a, a happy marriage, you're inevitably going to discover what makes an unhappy marriage. Yeah. And you, you lock into one in particular about intentionality yeah. that I think is worth the time to, to give it. Yeah. So what, what does intentionality have to do with unhappiness and happiness? So it's truly, it is the pivot point. Mm. Because it is easy and I think the norm for inertia to take over and for us just to do what feels right. And we don't realize that what feels right to us may not be at all what the other person needs. Even if we're tr actually trying hard, like it could be that we're not on autopilot. It could be that we're, most people we found statistically actually were trying in their marriage. They cared about the other person deeply. And instead, the problem is, because we don't know some of the things that matter, like the men, women stuff I was just mm -hmm. talking about, you can be trying so hard, and you're trying hard in the wrong areas. Like, if you're a wife, and you're saying, I love you, I love you, I love you to your husband, and that's trying hard, that's nice, but then at the same time, you're like, well, why didn't you mow that part of the lawn? You know, and, and you're like, well, that's not a big deal. To him, it's a huge deal because you're saying you failed. Mm. We wouldn't see it that way. We kind of think, wow, that's oversensitive, you know. But, but for a guy, because of that do I measure up thing, we've missed that insecurity. And we don't realize we have completely tried hard in the wrong areas, and we're actually hurting him. And mm. we would never intend to. And so being intentional is really about, we found, it's not just about not being on autopilot, because a lot of people really are trying already. It's really learning, being intentional about learning what matters to them, mm. what hurts them, and seeing it as legitimate instead of thinking they're so oversensitive or whatever. That's powerful. I, I mowed the lawn on Friday. Can I tell you thank you on yes. behalf of well, Katie? Yeah. I may have or may not have pointed it out to my wife, and I told her it was artwork. Just going to say it right now. It, because it's true. It's funny you bring that up. But what I have learned from, from meeting with couples, too, some couples will say, I wish it was like it used to be. And, and they'll refer back to, it might be the dating time. It might be the first few years. But what I have discovered over and over their marriage began to unfold in a bad way when they stopped being intentional. Yeah. Whether it would have been when kids were introduced into the family or, or a job, something shifted, and, and they just stopped being as, in, as intentional as they used to you be. You take it for granted, which is understandable in some way because you want to be able to have a place that's safe hmm. for you to relax. All of that is great, but you don't necessarily realize that something else has entered the picture, which is you are hurting the other person and you never intended to. Wow. Well, uh, 
Church, I, I really want you to cue in on this. Um, well, growing up, I, I was a pastor's kid, and so my dad would preach, and, and he would end his messages uh, typically reciting at the end of the message Ephesians 3.20. Uh, now all glory to God, and he goes into, the, look at the very end of it, how God can accomplish inf- infinitely more than what we might think, what we might ask or think. Other versions will even say what you can imagine. God can do more than what you can even imagine. I want you to connect this to intentionality. Some of you, I know this about you, you are here hoping and desperate that these 30 to 40 minutes will rescue your marriage. Many of us do that. We're all, I think many of us have gone into a moment desperate and say, fix it. Fix it. It's got to be fixed and it's got to be fixed right now. We're in emergency mode. And I'm going to tell you right now, it can't be fixed in 30 to 40 minutes. But if you'll take intentionality and not just say, well, that sounds neat, or I sure hope the other one becomes intentional. If you will take it now and press it in saying, I'm going to be intentional now, and you involve God who is able to do more than you're even able to ask him to do, I believe that your marriage, my marriage, all of our marriages can thrive, but it's going to require you and I to be intentional. And so here's what I want you to consider. You heard her say, research tells us that being in church last week regularly is a major attribute to happy marriages. So are you going to intentionally be here the next four weeks? I'm not just trying to get you into church. I want your marriage to thrive. And so what you're going to have to do is look at it more than an emergency mode in this moment But look at what God can do if you involve him, involve a community, and involve truth from the Bible. And I think we can win in this. So so if you're curious, Pastor David, what are you going to talk about in the weeks to come? Well, I'm going to talk about sex. I'm going to try to talk about it every single week. Every single week. But we're going to talk about conflict and communication. We're going to talk about when you say a vow and you say, till death do us part. Is that supposed to be taken literally? What does that mean? We're going to unpack that throughout the weeks. But I want you to consider this idea. Are you willing to be intentional? Are you willing to do the work now? And that's why we named the series from this day forward. I'm not talking about changing the past because you can't. But from this day forward, whether your spouse chooses to or not, you can choose to be intentional. And one of the easiest steps forward is to press in and say, I'm going to be a part of church. Some of you, it's to join a group and dive into, 11 of the groups are going to to take these books and they're going to press into them and unfold them and and figure out each other and themselves and, and, and learn. But there is a God who can do more than you can ask him. And I'm going to encourage you to, to press in and let him be a part of your marriage. So I want to ask you to pray for us. Yeah. But I think it would be appropriate to thank Shanti for all that she's just shared with us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. If you get a chance, go to the lobby, grab these books. You have to pay for them. Don't just grab them and run. Like, seriously. Uh, But we are about to go as a church into a month of pressing into our marriages. And so I'm going to ask you, would you pray for us as we go into this? Because I think this is critical. I'd be glad to. Lord, um, I am so grateful that this church, that this body of people is so eager and willing to press in and to invest in marriage. 
whether people here are married, whether they are single and looking ahead, whether they're single again and looking back, um, Lord, I just pray that you would encourage every heart here today. I pray that you would anoint these groups that are going to be talking about marriage and thinking about it and Lord, just anoint these groups to be a place of safety and to be a place of encouragement, eye-opening truth straight from you for your hand to move where people desperately need it to move. And I pray, Lord, that you would anoint the marriages in this church that are thriving, because I know there are many. They're not necessarily always perfect, but they're thriving. I pray, Lord, you would anoint those people to be mentors to others, to be willing to invest and come alongside and say, it's okay, we're going to walk you through this, you're going to get there, and it's going to be awesome. Lord, I pray that you would anoint these weeks and that honestly, Lord, what comes out of these would be a light to the city, that the marriages in this church would be a light to this city and this area. We ask all of this, Lord, knowing that you are able to do even more than we're asking or that we can imagine right yeah. now. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, Aaron, first question. What movie reminds you of us? When Harry met Sally, because we hated each other for three years plus, mm-hmm. and um, then realized that we were perfect for each other. And when you find that you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Yeah, so we kind of did that. We, we know, like we've seen this movie together 10 times, and we know so many lines. Yes. Because it's a great movie. Because it's kind of our story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> From spitting grapes on the window, too. Yeah. Yeah. What was the first thing you noticed about me? First thing I noticed about Erin Goodman is that she was singing for the worship team. And I would say, man, her voice was so beautiful and she was so attractive. I would either be led immediately into the presence of Jesus or I would struggle with lust. All right, when, Erin, do you feel most loved? I remember being in a fight with my mom, which almost never happens but you kind of came in and rescued me, like talked my mom through and helped her understand. So I think I feel that was one of the times in our marriage where I felt incredibly loved because I felt like he really knows me and he knows what's going on in my heart. And even when I can't communicate that to someone, You did such a good job of communicating. You knew what I was thinking. You knew what I was feeling. Hmm, this is a good one. What is the biggest obstacle that we have overcome together? I feel like our marriage almost exploded. It almost fell apart. So the biggest thing that we've overcome together is our marriage. me coming to grips with who I am and um, all the ways in which I was leaning inward, I was selfish, I was in this marriage not for you but for me first. Like I loved you, I always cared about you, but it was after me. Um, And that took its toll over 20 years. So 
um, how do you come back from taking second place in the midst of a relationship that's supposed to be life-giving? You, you didn't feel like it was life-giving, you felt like it was life-draining and that you were holding on by a fingernail. And so what we overcame was us, what we overcame was me, what we overcame was my own sin, my own fallenness, my selfishness. So what's one vow you would make to me from this day forward? You, you can take all of the words down to a simple phrase. It's, under God, I'm yours. And I, I feel like that's the vow that I'd make to you today is, I'm yours. Aaron, what's one vow that you would make to me from this day forward? I think for me, it's the same, but it's, there's a sense of I'm not going to allow what was the past yeah. to enter back in. And I'm not going to live out of those things. I'm going to trust and hope and believe that what God's done in you and in us and in our marriage is his work and his goodness.